Welcome to episode 14 of Apolitik. This podcast is a progressive discussion of politics for people who hate politics. Our goal is to encourage voters to register and then vote in a process of transforming our society in a more progressive direction. We want to see everyone move forward, everyone be more empowered, everyone to feel like they have ownership in this society. And we want them to feel that there is a future for them. And we believe that the current problems that we're grappling with are aggravated by the fact that 40% of registered voters don't vote and that many more aren't registered. So we're hoping to encourage you to register and vote. Today is the last episode where we're talking about the situation with increasing equity and opportunity for those who have historically been oppressed particularly African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, and women. So we want to talk about how this equity and opportunity have been progressing very slowly, too slowly. We want to see equity and opportunity greatly increase. It will take time But if we work at it in a progressive direction, we will not see decades go by with no progress. So we're going to talk about where we are as of today. This builds on the history that started in 1619 when slavers brought the first slaves to Virginia. Then, through the period of the Revolution, the Civil War, the Reconstruction from the Civil War, the period of World War II, World War I and World War II, and then the 1960s, the Civil Rights Movement. So we want to move forward now. We want to see progress being made. So we hope you'll join us. Here we go. Welcome to episode 14 of A Politic. And today we're going to finish our discussion of the sixth principle of progressive political thinking that is, increases equity and opportunity for those who have historically been oppressed, particularly African Americans, Latinos. Native Americans, and women. And we want to begin with a review from last time of an important fact that there is growing racial and ethnic diversity in Congress. Between 2001 and 2019, the number of non-white U.S. House and Senate members 
increased among African Americans from 36 in 2001 to 56 in 2019. The number of Hispanic representatives increased from 19 in 2001 to 43 in 2019. The number of Asians increased from seven to 17 in 2019. And the number of Native Americans went from one to four in 2019. So we have had some improvement, but we are very far behind what we might say is a good improvement in racial and ethnic diversity in our country. Now we want to turn to the issues of increasing equity and opportunity for women in the area of pay scale. And I want to welcome Steve uh, to the broadcast today. Hi, Steve. Hi, hi, Bill. How are you today? I'm doing well. Hey, we want to begin our discussion today with the Lilly Ledbetter Act. That was the first bill that President Obama signed into law. And I'd like for you to share with our audience what happened, what, what was the Lilly Ledbetter Equal Pay Act? Well, Bill, the uh, Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009 actually amended the Civil Rights Act that passed in 1964. And Lilly Ledbetter basically declared that it was an unfair or unlawful practice if you discriminated based upon compensating someone for their work, if indeed their wages were different, uh, if an individual uh, basically had to live with different rules that applied to them but not others in the workplace. And uh, if just uh, the fact that the decision dealt with practices, that would include differences in pay wages, benefits, and other compensation that the individual would be paid. And if indeed a woman was found to be employed by a vendor that basically discriminated against the females in the company and awarded males higher pay or better forms of compensation, that was declared illegal uh, under the uh, Lilly Ledbetter Act of 20, uh, 2009. Okay. So the net effect of the Lilly Ledbetter Act was that by 2020, according to payscale.com, the gender gap was still 81 cents for women compared to a dollar that a man would make, but there were some other developments. So Steve, why don't you share that with us? Well, Bill, the pay gap has uh, improved in some respects, but on the other hand, uh, the, the gender gap pay has, has ranged uh, still um, out of whack as far as what men and women would get. In uh, professions uh, that are considered highly technical, let's say anesthesiology, a female would still be getting paid 83 cents on the same dollar that the male would receive, and even a sales representative uh, of a company, uh, a female would be getting only 90 cents uh, compared to the male getting a dollar. So 
Yes, there's improvement, but we still have uh, a bit of a ways to go. That's so true, Steve. Well, our next topic is exploring the black-white wealth gap. And our first data is from 2016. This was from the Brookings Institution. And basically they found that the net worth of a typical white family is about $171,000, nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family in 2016, $17,150. Now that goes into even more detail and Steve, why don't you share some of that information with us? Well, one of the key variables in all of this is the the income that a family has coming in from their their incomes versus the the asset wealth of the family. If people don't own their homes outright, then their actual worth is not as much as it would be if indeed they owned their home and they had access to, let's say, lines of credit that could be um, a home equity loan. And so at the end, uh, um, you basically have families that just by the time they get their paycheck at the end of the week, that's taking care of all of their daily uh, wants and needs, but they're not accumulating any wealth because they really don't have any wherewithal uh, in terms of their income to have anything left over to build the wealth that establishes um, uh, an ability to live more comfortably over time. So that's true. And what we want to talk about now is transitioning from the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009 and going into 2010 and compare that to what's been going on lately this year. So according to another study from the Pew Research Organization that uh, among lower and middle income households, white families have four times as much wealth as black families and three times as much wealth as Hispanic families, however, lower-income white families experienced greater losses in wealth during that recession than lower-income black families and lower-income Hispanic families. So as we talk about this transition, Steve, what stands out to you? Well, in terms of the difference between 09 and the pandemic that we're in the midst of currently, correct? Yes. Well, it, it really is uh, an order of magnitude. Uh, as you were saying earlier, a lot of working class white families were just getting into the home ownership world. And when the banking infrastructure collapsed in 09, it kind of took all of them down. I mean, they didn't have a lot of equity in in their homes. They were relatively new homeowners. And so they didn't, let's say, own half of the real estate or three quarters of the real estate where they could get a line of credit 
that would support their ability to maintain their financial uh, wherewithal. Today, it's almost uh, as if it's an artificial tsunami, in a way, uh, of economics. Um, the, the pandemic has forced the economy, in order to have public health, closing it down to the point where people had to close down their businesses, close down their shops, and it was, in a way, again, the means by which their income flow was was uh, generated. And all of a sudden, that got turned off immediately, and without the CARES Act and what was uh, at least um, structured for the American people to utilize to get them, you know, beyond the, the crisis, here we are as, as we record this particular uh, episode, the Congress is, is, is doing nothing. I mean, uh, it's um, October of uh, 2020, and um, in the wisdom of the leadership of the Senate, they went on vacation in August. Like, you know, what pandemic? So in a, in a, in a real sense, there's, there's nothing, there's no sense of emergency, of right. urgency. And people are losing not only their incomes, they're losing their homes. They're losing their cars, um, and it, it's just um, it's it's just a, a horrible state of affairs. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of leadership to guide the country out of this 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 quagmire. Well, the leadership basically is divided. That's why they're not making any progress. The Democrats believe. There should be two to three billion dollars of additional aid. And the Republicans are saying, no, we don't need any additional aid. We're already too far in debt. And it's not going to make that much difference. So while thousands and millions of people are going through tremendous up upheaval economically, there is a certain percentage of roughly 50% of our country who can survive without additional aid, then the lower 50% of people are getting hit really hard. And the politicians, the conservatives in general, and those are Democrats and Republicans are saying, well, we can probably survive in office if we don't do anything more. Whereas some of the progressive Democrats are saying, no, we need a certain minimum level. If we agree to 10% or 20% of what's needed, we're not actually benefiting people that much. And just as one point as well, Steve, back in April of 2020, the CARES Act that was passed included $195 billion in tax loopholes that were snuck into the relief bill for Americans, the, the wealthier Americans. And according to ProBlubica, in June of 2020, they took a closer look at the tax loopholes and they found that corporations received $257 billion in loopholes that also benefited around 40,000 wealthy Americans 
And that was 257 billion versus 292 billion that were divided up among 330 million people. So 40,000 wealthy individuals and corporations received $257 billion, 330 million people received $292 billion. So the inequities are just crazy and people don't seem to care, especially in the political establishment, what the average person is going through. I think there's another element to this uh, bill States are not allowed to do anything other than have a balanced budget every year. They cannot carry over any sort of financial losses into the next fiscal year. The federal government is not bound by such a rule or, or law. Then you also have the Federal Reserve, which has, I think, 0% interest right now. So they, the Congress of the United States can float these large... Uh, commitments to the country to tide us over until we get to the other side of the pandemic. And yet they, as you were saying, they'll borrow it so that it benefits a few wealthy people in relationship to the amount of money that is then uh, distributed to the vast majority of Americans who, again, live in states where they cannot budget beyond the fiscal year. And here we have one of the things that Congress has really been asked desperately by the state saying, look, we need some revenue here so we can pay our bills at the state level so that we don't all go bankrupt at the end of the day. And Congress can just go to the Federal Reserve and at 0% interest and um, how much do you need? And so it is a very unequal playing field. Right. And so in case people are listening, well, what does this really mean for me? What it really means is if you are feeling left out of the system, if you're feeling powerless, we urge you again, register to vote and then vote. Because if you vote for those politicians that want to equalize the benefits of this situation and equalize the costs of this situation more fairly, this could break the logjam. Right now, our uh, politic is divided about 50-50, really. It's about actually maybe 43 to 49% that the conservatives have about 43%. The more liberal uh, parties have about 48%. But if you want to break this logjam, then it is that 40% that are not voting. We need you to vote. We need you to express your opinions. And we're not sure how you're going to vote. I mean, people have their own opinions about the best way to solve these problems. But I guarantee you that the more people that vote, the better solutions we'll have. So we'll have to call it an end right there, but thank you so much, Steve, for participating today with us. Well, uh, thank you again, Bill.
you've been listening to episode 14 of Apolitik. Again, we want to remind you that the deadline for registration to vote is Monday, October 5th. And early voting begins the next day, October 6th. That's Tuesday. And it all winds up November 3rd in this coming presidential election. So we look forward to seeing you again for episode 15 of A Politics.